0: Gracious God and Father, we are so thankful for your mercy uh, and your grace that have given us everything we need to life um, through Christ. Lord, we are thankful for your word that is uh, powerful, that is able to teach us, to instruct us in every single situation of life. Lord, we know that this world uh, does not want to struggle, and we don't want to struggle. And yet, um, in your sovereign race and and kindness you allow us to go through moments of deep darkness Um, and I pray father that as we look to your word we might find hope um, that when as we look at the world and how they have perceived the issue of sadness and grief and what they call depression we may find ways to encourage and to point them to the truth um, Lord, we need you and ask your help over our time here in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright. Just as a way f- uh, of starting, uh, Scripture won't use the word depressed. I think there was there's one occurrence in our NASV translation, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul is speaking to the Corinthians after he has written that harsh letter to them, um, calling them out to repentance. And, and here's he's speaking some of his own experience that he had in his missionary journey. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, and, and let's look at verse 5 and on. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5. For when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God comforts the depressed. That's the one occurrence there. God comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. And as he reported to us, your longing and mourning and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. But though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did, it, I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, we understand that we go through sorrows in this life, and all of them really are appointed by the Lord. It might be as a discipline um, of his loving kindness toward us, um, or it might be, in a sense, um, his discipline in transforming us and wanting to change us. Not that we had committed any sin, um, as we're going to see later. Uh, Job is one that went through suffering very intense, and yet he hadn't done anything um, to, to deserve that suffering. Um, so I just wanted to, to get you started, get you whet- appetite, uh, to get your appetite on this, um, what the scripture says here, that God is sovereign. In, in all our suffering. But um, I wanted to start here with some statistics for you. So the depression is now the largest, uh, the world's largest health problem, accounting for more disability, and they call it a disorder, than any other disease worldwide. Untreated major depression disorder is primary cause of completed suicides. Only one in three patients will Achieve remission following after 12 weeks of treatment with the first line, the de- antidepressant medication. This uh, psychiatrist, Alan Tasman, explains that in, in spite of the improved under understanding of risk factors and increased vigilance for suicide risk among mental health and other medical practitioners and family of those at risk, the suicide rate in the U.S. continues to go up. Um, gathered some data from 2006 through 2016. And there's an overall of US suicide rate went up from 1097 to 13.27 per 100,000 people. It, It seems a little bit small of a number, but when you consider this with the larger population, it is a big number. Um, In two years, they reflect just an increase over 20% in this 10 years. And with COVID, I am pretty sure that things have really, really changed. I remember when I was applying um, uh, through immigration, I I got to research some data here in Minnesota and it it was pretty impactful, just what COVID did during this past few years. Psychiatrist William Basco uh, Jr also notes how suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, and suicide completions continue their trend upward in adolescence, despite the alleged scientific advances and increased knowledge about depression. Suicide is a third leading cause of death among adolescents in the United States. That is pretty significant. <clears throat> so both suicide ideation and suicide attempts are markers of increased risk for later completed suicide. Then I mentioned here, surveys suggest that 80%, and this is a um, more recent information, that 80% or more of the general public now believe that it is established that depression is called by chemical imbalance. And um, as we're going to see later, this, this is no news. Chemical imbalance, uh, I mean, even in my time in college, they said this is not a theory that has been proved. Doctors knew about it, and yet they said that this is a way that we can soothe our patients because they're suffering, they're struggling. They want to have an explanation for why they're struggling with this. And so this is what we tell them. Even though we, know we don't know this, now we know. <laughs> it, doesn't, it is not caused by chemical imbalance. For um, recent research, very thorough Uh, has debunked that theory completely. So many general practitioners practitioners also subscribe to this view and popular websites commonly cite the theory. And I'll give you a little bit of history, how this came about. I I think it's important for us to know where we are at and where that came from. What what this theory came from? In the US, um, selective serotonin reuptake in a bitter, SSRI, Antidepressant. It's the most common one used for uh, treating depression. Um, this highly successful director uh, to consumer advertising is the what explain the campaigns that explain how this medication got so popularized here in the U.S. Um, so another interesting thing is that in Brazil we cannot have advertisement in our in our TV for medication because the our uh, our surveillance agency, which will be equivalent to the FDA here in the U.S., they believe that it is very harmful, and I do, and, and I tol- wholeheartedly agree. You're targeting the patients that don't have enough information, and you are appealing to their suffering to have people to seek medication. And so, um, for instance, sertraline or Zoloft. Uh, was the sixth best selling medication in the US in two thousand four. Over three billion in sales uh likely due this advertisement, heavy advertisement in the T V and to the doctors. Um, they widely dismissed advertising campaigns, Serenz Zoloft's miserably depressed avoid creature a creature. It it's you know they portrayed a person miserable and then you know just saying, you know, your your days are dark, and they start appealing to that, and then they show the person taking the medication how happy they are, smiling, and playing with the grandkids, and it's just that appeal. Who doesn't want a life like that going through suffering and struggle? Research has demonstrated that this class-wide SSRI advertising has expanded the size of the antidepressant market, and the SSRIs are now among the best selling drugs uh, for medical practice. So I have a a PowerPoint presentation with a few quotes uh, from um, the, we're we're gonna get there eventually, from the pharmaceutical industry. But um, I list here to you the constructs of depressive disorder. So this is the DSM, remember that I, I mentioned to you almost every week, this is how they diagnose, so they have the list of of, um, characteristics of the disease, they have the descriptions, the prevalence, the population that affects the most, and they have, I I mean, it it is a long list of different diagnoses. So I, I copied it there, just the major ones, so you have an idea what we're dealing with, how they see it, when someone comes to a clinic, And in the last page of your notes, I gave you the checklist for major depressive disorder. So we're gonna get to some of that. Um, All right, the first one, that one really had me going for a while. I'm like, what? And I want you to read this and think, does the scripture talks about these things? In what way does the scripture talks about these things? The first one is called Disruptive Mood Dysregulation Disorder. It is a new diagnosis that was introduced in 2013, and it's primarily focusing on children from the age to six through 18 years of age. Um, they're trying to avoid an overdiagnosis of bipolar in kids, so they came up with this new one to explain this, and it's basically anger. Its core feature is chronic, severe and persistent irritability. This irritability has two prominent clinic manifestations. The first one is frequent temper outbursts. These outbursts typically occur in response to frustration and can be verbal and behavioral. Behavioral outbursts take the form of aggression against property, self, and others. So a child having temper tantrums at school, um, way home, right? they say here, outbursts uh, must occur frequently on average three or more times per week. I mean, can, do, you, do you have children in your family? Have you seen temper tantrums two or three times a week? Well, they have a diagnosis now. Over at least one year or at least two settings in such in the home and at school. Outbursts must be development inappropriate appropriate uh, for the age. And the second manifestation is severe irritability consists of a chronic and persistently irri- irri- irritable and angry mood in the present between the outbursts. This irritable and angry mood must be characteristic of the child being present most of the day, nearly every day, and noticeably by others in the child's environment. I I have come across parents <laughs> that yes. are very controlling or... Um, just didn't train their children well, and and this is what you get. And now this is a disorder, it's a disease that requires treatment. All right, the major one, it's the B B there that I put for you, is major depressive disorder, and this is the one that we're gonna be focusing the most. Um, Patients should present five or more of these symptoms during the same two-week period, uh, change from previous functioning at least one of the symptoms being a depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure. And the, same, uh, the symptoms I attach there, so the checklist, I don't know. I, when you get home, maybe, maybe do that test. You see the list of nine of the, of the symptoms there on the point A. If someone presents five or more of these, they are clinically depressed. So if the symptom has been sustained for at least uh, two weeks, every day, most of the day, mark the, bo- the box sustained. So depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day, as indicated by subjective report. So it, it, it's not that someone is seeing that, even if people are not noticing this in you, but you are, it's, it's subjective, then you just mark it. If you feel sad or empty and hopeless, an observation made by others as well, markedly a diminished interest in pleasure in almost or almost all activities most of the day nearly every day significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain so change of more than 5% of body weight in a month or decrease or decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day so you can have some that either they will lose weight or they will put on weight during that time insomnia or hypersomnia nearly every day psychomotor um, agitation or retardation nearly every day. That's what some people describe as this brain fog that they can't really think through things straight. They're just on that dark cloud over, hanging over their heads. Fatigue, loss of energy nearly every day, feelings of worthle- worthlessness, excessive and inappropriate guilt. Now I do want you to pay attention to these keywords. Hopelessness, guilt. Scripture talks about these things. Diminished ability to think or concentrate, indecisiveness, and in nearly every day. Recurrent thoughts of death, not just the fear of dying, the recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or a suicide attempt or a specific plan for committing suicide. And the, the major thing is that it, it causes. Um, significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, in most areas of functioning. You know, a person can't operate the same way when they go to work because they're experiencing these things. Now there's more qualifications. You know, They classify them as mild, moderate, or severe. Um, there is just so much that you can, you can see on this. Then um, there is the persistent uh, depressive disorder or dysthemia. So if those symptoms have lasted for a, over a period of two years, then you have a different diagnosis. It's the persistent kind of depression. Now, I don't know. I did put something there just to break because this is so heavy. I got some cartoon there. If you flip your page, I think we have it there in our presentation. Peanuts, I appreciate peanuts. <laughs> um, so what is the name of that, that girl um, in the, in the cartoon? Lucy, so Lucy is providing um, counseling help for depression or psychiatric help, right? And so Linus, is that his name? Charlie Brown. So Charlie Brown is, I have deep feelings of depression. You can get help for five cents. (laughs) What I can do about this? And she says, just snap out of it. Five cents, please. you um i I put that there though because i I think it it raises our awareness um you know i had people coming for this this is struggle i'm not condoning necessarily the the diagnosis from the dsm but sometimes we can be sensitive when you're still struggling with this you know there are people that are really insensitive they don't realize that this is not a thing that you you just snap out of it that easy so we ought to be listening you ought to be understanding and even if there is even if there is a a sinful behavior issue that you need to address it is not by just snap out of it just just be joyful be joyful rejoice in the lord Uh, it's not how it's going to happen. Oh, just memorize a bunch of verses and you're going to be fine. That, that cheap counseling, I think, it has damaged more people than not, and then they're looking for help elsewhere because they're not helping them properly. So I, I believe we, we do need to um, address those things. All right, and then, then there's these two other categories here that I believe it, it's, you know, there is fundament, <laughs> foundation for it, um, the substance of medication-induced depressive disorder, and these are things they're they're proved. Um, the prominent and persistent disturbance in mood that predominates in the clinical picture and is characterized by depressed mood and markedly, you know, so all the symptoms from the previous ones. But then there's evidence from history, or physical examination, or laboratory findings of both one and two. So where, where are these? one is the symptoms of the criterion one from that, that develop during or soon after substance intoxication or if draw from certain medications. So I listed to you there different types of medication that will have depression as a symptom. So this is not a disease per se, it's a symptom. I wouldn't characterize it as, so the moment that the person either stops that drug, they start feeling depressed, and it could be um, cardiac or high blood pressure medication, such as um, I, Inderol. So a lot of these, you know, people take those medications. Not everyone that takes them will experience depression, but there is a possibility that they might experience these things. Anti-Parkinson medication, um, certain um, hormones and steroids, um, anti-pregnancy uh, medication, uh, uh, what do you call it? birth control pills um, might induce some of these symptoms. But again, it's a symptom. And the moment that either they, the drug is withdrawn, they'll, they'll come back to normal because it's being clearly caused by that medication. So these can be proved. You, you, you can go and, and take a lab exam to, to see the correlation. Um, so I listed there. If you're curious, you can go over some of these um, medications. And then the last category is depressive disorder due to another medical condition. So certain organic causes, some certain diseases would have depression as a symptom. The moment that you address the disease, that you are treating the disease, the the depressive symptoms will abate eventually. Now there's evidence from the history or physical examination or laboratory findings. Certain type of um, cancer or uh, problems with thyroid will have those issues. Rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, certain vitamins deficiency. So all those things can can be through a medical examination ruled out, so it is I I just put that for your information so you know that there is a possibility there is organic causes. Now, these tend to be, and I've seen different opinions, Uh, I think Dr. Um, Ed Welch thinks 30% of people that struggle with depression are these organic causes. I saw Dr. Charles Hodges said probably 10% of them, so it's a small percentage. But one of the first things that you want to do is to see a doctor and see if there's any causes that can be ruled out from, from those things. All right, now I wanna give you a little bit of a history of, um, of depression in, in its treatment. So this is a common problem, it's, this is not new. We tend to think, you know, the diagnosis of depression as you'll see later, it was really in the 1900s that came as we have it today. Um, but people have struggled with deep sadness and grief Uh, for many, many years. In the early 1600s, depressive disorders were commonly called melancholia, uh, from the Greek word black bile, because of the false belief that the kidney, or the spleen, um, caused people to be sad, hopeless, or even manic. So that's what melancholia means, and that's how they called it. Other terms, such as neurasthenia, or mopishness, have also been utilized by secularists to describe these human struggles. Then, moving on to the 1800s, the German psychiatrist Emil Kraep, uh, Kraepelin. Mind you, this guy, Emil Kraepelin, is one of the major forces in uh, what we call today mental illness. And, and these are people during um, that set the basis for German Nazism, you know, during that time to talk about the, the, the purity of the race. So, people that with mental illness were disabled and they needed to be exterminated. So, the diagnosis of those diseases that they came up with wasn't really, uh, oh, we're, we're being compassionate about people suffering. No. So how can we know so we can eliminate them? So, it, the, the origin of these things are very dark they created his diagnosis called affective psychosis, meaning the emotional condition of the soul, and included both the unipolar or the bipolar depression. So this is 1800s. Now we move on to the 1952, we have already the American Psychiatric Association established, and they began to describe describe these struggles as a depressive reaction or manic depressive reaction. That was the DSM-1 the first publication of uh, their statistical manual for diagnosis. And the history leads us today to the current primary labels of uh, depression or bipolar. So for some of you that are not familiar with the whole unipolar, bipolar, the unipolar is a person that has the depressive events, and then the bipolar is a person that has depression, but they have at least one manic, episode so where they go from being extremely down to being extremely excited and they might go on um, purchasing things that they, they don't have money to to afford those things or uh, a, a thinking of grandiosity we will we'll address bipolar later um, in a whole separate lecture but it is that manic episode that classifies them as bipolar that they have Basically, going up and down. They go from one extreme to another, two poles. All right, moving on. And then that's the picture that you see there. In the same year, 1952, the clinicians at the State Island Sea View Hospital discovered by mistake the first uh, antidepressant drug while treating tuberculosis patients with a new experimental. Uh, neurotransmitting acting drugs. So they acted in the neurons, uh, and for whatever reason, they um, messed up. They never proved what it is. Uh, They can't explain, which for me was kind of fascinating. Um, Every time you go study a disease in in pharmacy school, you have a pathology, have an explanation on how that disease is happening at a cellular level. But then we come to the psychotic, medications and the, um, the psychiatric diseases, there was no mechanism of action how that pathology is established. And then how then you treat it, the drug has an effect. You don't know how it's working, but it's working. So you see the picture there, that lady, uh, it's a tuberculosis patients, Gloria Sidenor, uh, Cy- uh, way on a scale at the Sea um, View Hospital, Previously underweight, she reached a healthy weight after participating in this um, medication drug. Now, what happened is within weeks, they were more alert, more sociable, regaining um, their lost weight. Obviously, their uh, loss of weight was due to the tuberculosis, not depression, but they did get more cheerful and they did increase their weight. So then that's when they started analyzing this, this drug for um, that other uh, prescription. So they were called monoamine oxidizing inhibitors, so A, O. These preventive uh, enzymes in the brain from breaking down uh, key chemicals, including norepinephrine, serotonin, and dopamine. Soon, psychiatrists began prescribing these drugs on a larger population of depressed patients. While some of the results were promising, researchers were cautious to note that there were varying degrees of improvement in these cases. Not everyone that took the medication felt good. Over the next decade or so, researchers endeavored to develop even better antidepressant drugs and for few desirable side effects, because they have many. So late 1960s, scientists found evidence that corpses of patients who died by suicide had low serotonin levels so as a result the pharmaceutical companies race to develop anti-drugs targeting serotonin all right now that's where the things get really dicey because when you you're trying to establish you come up with a disease this is to, to prove this is a real disease and not something that someone has has been thinking you have to establish the pathology how how your body is is working at a cellular level to be able to prove that disease. What? So they've never been able to do it with any of these diseases apart from those that you know that is being caused by medication or is being caused by certain diseases that has depression as a side, if you know, as a symptom, not necessarily as a main cause as the main disease. They've never been able to do that with none of the psychiatric diseases. Yes, Ricky. Yeah. Yep, yep, it's, it's, it, it's a faulty logic. There is a, it's, it's a medical term for this. I, I didn't memorize it. It was a, a Latin term. But basically, they work their way backwards. If this drug is affecting them in a positive way, there must be something wrong with them. So they're, they're bringing the diagnosis not really from the disease per se, but from the drug that has a positive effect and makes people feel good. Um, and there were many doctors that have that done that for different diseases and they were never able to prove the, this kind of reasoning. It's not very well accepted in the medical community, um, this way of, of re- reasoning. So 1965, Harvard psychiatrist Joseph Eskildra- Eskildraut proposed that depression was caused by the deficit of noro, uh, norepinephrine. So these are excitab- excitable, exciting, um, inducing, excitement-inducing uh, neurotransmitters in our brain. So they're thinking, because the person is down, these neurotransmitters are maybe low or uh, not, might not be working properly. And then others propose it was a deficit in serotonin um, as the cause. It was believed that the behavior and emotions of depression were caused by this imbalance between the certain chemicals in the brain, including norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. The theory became the centerpiece of a decade long educational program promoted by the manufacturers of the SSRI, such as Prozac and Zoloft. Now, um, this whole thing I've seen in, in my college time, um, remember, as I told you, studying those things and um, we had to memorize how the drugs worked, um, and when it came to the psychotic drugs, we could not they would say, uh, "Maybe this is the mechanism of action I, I got every time I remember being really upset, why do I have to memorize this? It's just a maybe, it's not a certain thing, but we had to you know remember how it worked and how we got to the cell, what they thought it was, and this got really disseminated. you know they come up with videos that explained and, and it it, it gave people comfort. Oh, well, I know why I'm sad. It's because there is a chemical imbalance in my brain. I'm not functioning properly. So through the years of 2000 and 2015, an indiscriminate the campaign by the pharmaceutical companies targeted patients directly in the medical community. So, a, as I told you previously, here, in, particularly here in the U.S., with all these commercials, all these ads, it really um, came to. Influence people, so I have some quotes there, of their, um, of their commercials. This is this is targeting people in the TV. Um, so the first one, Selexa helps to restore the brain chemical, the brain chemical balance by increasing the supply of a chemical messenger in the brain called serotonin. Although the brain chemistry of depression is not fully understood. But yet they're saying there does exist a growing body of evidence to support the view that people with depression have an imbalance of the brain neurotransmitters. Now, mind you, most of these studies are being funded by the pharmaceutical industry. Imagine when you go and, and you, you take several pictures. You go for a vacation and you take several pictures. Then you delete the ones that you think is really awkward. Right, because you don't want to keep it. You want people to, to see you and be ashamed of it. So they delete those pictures, and you have out of 100, maybe you, have, you keep 20. That's how some of these studies were done. Y- you have positive and negatives, and a lot of negatives that they just, well, let's just put this under the rug. It's not really relevant. Maybe there was, he- there was bias here. And so out of that, a small amount that is preserved of the studies they go on and say, oh, there's increasing evidence that this is working. I remember one of the studies that I read, it was, they were saying out of, uh, there was 80% of, uh, of success with people. It was a group of 300. Now, they selected the 27 people that did have a good result on, on that population, and then they picked up the, the, the success rate of 80%, based not on the 300 population, but on the 27. It, it's just amazing how they manipulate the, that data. Fluoxetine, I remember this, especially in Brazil, the, the, the thing was that it dis- does decrease weight, so people were struggling with being overweight. They were taking off of the depression, but because they wanted to get thinner. So when you're clinically depressed, one thing that can happen is the level of serotonin, a chemical in your body that may drop, so you may have trouble with sleeping, feel unusually sad or irritable, find it hard to concentrate, lose your appetite, lack of energy, or trouble feeling pleasure. To help bring serotonin levels closer to normal, this medicine, the medicine doctors now prescribe most often is Prozac. This is, I mean, it is going on commercial things that have no foundation or proof that exists, but they're speaking as if this, this is true. And I believe for us as believers, um, yes, we extol the truth of God's word, but we extol truth in general. We, we don't endorse lies. And I think it's important for us to think this, this, is, this is manipulation of truth. Um, all right, moving on. We'll get past this historical part and we'll get to more meaty and interesting things here in a little bit. Now, um, 2013, the DSM removes the clause unknown cause. So when I was in school, this is how I learned about depression. People, they're struggling. They're suffering. They have this deep sadness. But there's no known cause. So say if someone lost a, a loved one or they lost a job or they had a, a, you know, the end of a relationship that was very traumatic, so that could not be depression because there is a correlation, there is a cause, an underlying cause for those things. So this is in my time in college. That's, it, it was eliminated. This is not depression. It's only when you don't know a, a, the, the cause. For no reason, the person just starts getting sad. Which is still, you know, still have people that struggle with that, Um, and yet that that was removed, and now we have, you know, a growing number of people because we have a lot of grieving people, with the loss of someone, with you know, a a traumatic breakup or um, loss of a job, moving um, to a different place. So there is a variety of things that wasn't diagnosed as depression that now is putting the bunch there. And then, this is more recent, in July of 2022, after years of uh, manipulation from the pharmaceutical industry over published studies and a continuous discrediting by the medical and the psychological community, a multi-professional group published one of the most thorough analysis of the theory of the chemical imbalance in the Journal of Molecular Psychiatry concluding, the main areas of serotonin research provide no consistent evidence of there being an association between serotonin and depression and no support for the hypothesis that depression is caused by lowered serotonin activity and concentrations. So, and this is not the first time. This was July of this year. Um, I had many quotes. I I don't want to read all of them there. Um, but I can provide it for you from previous studies that's saying that has not been found. This has not been found. During the year, the 2000s, a lot of research has been published on this. Now they did this meta-analysis that gathered all these studies, put together and say let's really see if what they're saying that the majority of the studies say that there is a correlation between serotonin and chemical imbalance uh, connected to depression. And guess what? It wasn't, it wasn't there. Alright? Now, where this leaves us, because we see that people struggle. And want to be want to be helpful to them. We want to be encouraging to them. We don't want to be dismissive. Right? Just snap out of it. Just get over it. The Bible speaks of this human experience in uh, the concept of sadness. It's this depression, I would say, is a deep sadness. It is common to the human nature. Um, I think if you watched the video that I sent the link earlier, Dr. Berger talks about the fact that in Genesis 3, once you know, the humanity fell, sadness and, and pain and hurt became part of the human experience. So what it's not abnormal, to experience sadness? I mean, you, you, Cain kills his brother. How do you think Adam and Eve felt their suffering, their pain that involves with that loss, with that grief? It, it is part of being human and living in a sin-cursed world that we will face these struggles, that we will face sadness. So it's not abnormal. It is, we're not disordered. We actually ordered i mean it's a natural response of living in a world um, that is affected by sin so there may be a disappointment over loss, such as death of a loved one over unmet expectations in the scriptures david experienced deep sadness or grief of a variety of reasons he was sad over the loss of his sons in second samuel 12 16 18 33 he felt grief over his sins. In Psalm 6 and Psalm 32, David talks about his experience when he committed the adultery with Bathsheba and then later um, killed Uriah and the guilt that he was facing. Um, he was in despair as he fled his attackers. In Psalm 69, godly Elijah, so this is an assignment for you um, to do. I want you to read first Kings chapter 17 through 19 and study the story of Elijah and how his you know depressive state came into, into being. Job 326, many times he's asking to die. Right? Suicidal ideation didn't have a specific plan how he was going to die, but he was asking that the Lord would kill him. Jeremiah and Jeremiah 20: 14 and 18, and other, and other similar experiences. So Psalm 143, 4, I mean, you go through the Psalms and you read about deep pain, not physical pain, but a spiritual one, an emotional one. Psalm 143, verse 4 says, My spirit is weak within me. My heart is overcome with dismay. Um, I remember studying Psalms 43 and 44. I think it's the sons of Korah, if I'm not mistaken here. Psalm 43. Psalm 42, actually. 42 and 43. Psalm 42 says, My tears have been my food day and night. Why they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to long long go with the throne and lead the procession, the house of God. And with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. And then he starts, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? He has no reason. He doesn't understand, why am I so sad? Why am I so depressed? I'm thinking about the joyful time that I used to have, but life now doesn't make sense. Why am I feeling this way? He's self-talk, right? One of the things, and we're going to get to this next week, is what does he say after that? Hope in God. Hope in God, for I, sh- for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, remember you in the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and Mount Mazar. And deep calls to deep, at the sound of your waterfalls, all the breakers and the waves that you rolled over me. He's basically saying God is in control of this. I don't know what it is, it feels a a despair, like a snowballing of sadness and anguish and despair, and yet I know that God is in control of this. Hope in God. Uh, Just a clue for next week, but I just read this as a way to share to you, this is not a, a new experience. People have struggled with sadness and what they call depression today yet despair and hopelessness magnification of sadness don't mark god's character god has been sad before it's not necessarily sinful to be sad god got sad over sin he grieved over sin and the consequences of sin if you're reading genesis you will read again and again that the lord was grieved that created mankind when he saw what man was doing, when we see injustices in our world, we are grieved. But yet, um, when G- even when Jesus experienced sadness, he did not grieve with despair. In other words, God does not get depressed, so while we can't understand the proper place for sadness over sin and loss, we must also acknowledge that sadness is not always sinliness, uh, sinless. Depression as an amplification of sadness might appear in two different forms. So, isolation, loss of interest, gloominess, hopelessness, suffering. Now, as believers in Christ, and this is what I want to stop here, and then I'll continue this next week, I want us to think where do we put these categories? Because the Bible does talk about some of these things, right? Um, I don't know how many of you were able to watch the video of the psychiatrist where she was explaining, you know, it's not just a chemical imbalance, you know, this, even if it was proved, this is just one part, one element of it, there is external influences, right? There's environmental factors, uh, you know, it could be a loss of someone, it could be going through trials, whatever it is, there, they, and then she is saying that this is one of the causes. Now in scripture, we know that it's not what happens to us that causes us to respond at times in sinful ways. Right? She talks about the body, that at times the body will face some of these things. So the most helpful thing is to put those, those in categories that the Bible does talk about. Remember when I talked about bitterness? And there were bitter circumstances? the difficulty in life, that is not a cause for someone to be struggling and to be constantly sad. It it explains and it it gives that experience. Um, I gave you there a, so there is an event plus our interpretation equals our response. Not every woman that loses a baby will have the same response. So there's the interpretation that they attach to that event that really causes their response. Not ever, well they'll be sad, they'll be in deep sorrow, but why is that some are able to get past it and others are not? So there is a difference, and the difference really is our interpretation of those events and what we attribute to those events. Now we're gonna get more in depth on this, but I wanted to hear your thoughts. On, on those biblical categories. What do you, what do you think on you know, what, what she was discussing, that a psychologist was discussing, as the events really cause us to, to do those things, um, or that our bodies are imposing on us? Because I, I put some distinction here insomnia, hypersomnia, this is body, right? Our main focus on when counseling and helping someone. We'll be focusing at the heart. The guilt. Does the Bible talk about guilt? Absolutely. I can help with that. I may not be able to help with the fatigue and the loss of energy, but I can help with the lack of thankfulness, the persistent guilt, the suicidal thoughts. The Bible addresses all those things at a heart level. So making that distinction will give us kind of a guidance where we go with this. All right. Questions, observations, so we'll get more in-depth into this. I, I just wanted to give you a preview on the history, right, and, and how the world sees it, and how scripturally, observation, thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Mary, thanks for sharing that. It, because uh, Mary is talking about her experience and saying how uh, medication has helped her. You know, um as I said, there's a small percentage that there is some good. Um, and yet, it, it doesn't address any of those, you know, the, the guilt, the, the spiritual part of it. Um, so I gave some guideline there at the end in the notes um, when it comes to medication. Obviously, if someone is taking a medication, I, I'm not going to tell them uh, just to stop it. Because I'm not a doctor, and um, to remove people from that, without deescalating or or, or having the proper proper monitoring, it won't it won't help. Now um, I don't know what are you in a regime of two or three medications, one or what what is that like? Yeah, and uh, the that's the interesting part because. Technically, it, it, you can't have it for more than four months. For you know, I want you to, to think over this. Actually, I'm not going to give a full answer right now. Um, there is a documentary. It's called um, "Medicating Normal," where you have doctors speaking on on this issue of medication and how really it has caused people to depend and to rely on those and and face a lot of side effects. I don't know how. Some of the side effects has affected you, uh, Mary in particular, but it, for the most part, it, it doesn't help. And for people to get, for a longer and longer period of time, you would have more and more side effects. Um, so I, I would be careful um, if you were helping someone to tell them, oh, you should stop. Address the heart. Address the heart. Um, the Bible does talk about those things, and let like the doctor deal with that. Now, if the person is experiencing improvement at, with the counseling and with the dealing with the heart, um, you know, I see more as what Mary said as a clutch for for something temporary. I mean, someone are, is not being able to sleep at all. Uh, the person is not functioning. It's not going to solve the heart issues but at least will help them to have a clear mind in that moment, and if, it is, if they are responding well, I think we should have the humility to say, yeah, I know it's not a chemical imbalance, but it does something in the brain, it, it, it does. We don't know for all, everyone, we have stories of success. Most of them, people, and re, even doctors, taking those medications, they are in a struggle to wean it out. Because once you put in one and then you have to attach another and another because it's not responding the same way, the rate of, of re-inciting those things keep coming back, keeps coming back. So, yeah, Kathy. Mm-hmm. So the, sometimes it's the numbing of, of the, the feelings that happen. You know, I think that's the majority of what I hear from people is that there is a numbing, of I, I can't feel that, you know, guilt anymore, or I, because I just don't feel anything. Um, but then we have people like Mary that does experience an improvement, and I think we ought to, to be humble enough. I mean, a hundred years ago, we had aspirin. Right? It, it, it just people took for everything. They they didn't know why you know where, but it worked. Um, so for a small percentage of people that the medication does work we don't know yet how it works we know that it's not chemical imbalance we know that it's not serotonin Um, but then my question would be um, how much of that is a placebo effect most of the studies shows people put the hope on on that oh i'm going to feel better and they take it and they feel better not because the drug is acting, but because hope is in there. Hope is a key element on the on the healing and feeling better. So you know, any other comments, questions? Dylan so is um talking about kind of a follow up on the on the fall and how we as the church we we do care that people suffer ultimately uh we, we our hope is in Christ, right. And I think that the meaning of hope, um, even with the studies of the placebo, where people that really are, they're getting better just because they took a pill that didn't know what it was in that pill, and they felt better. It's just the hope that I will feel better. Now We have a bigger and greater hope that it's, it's infinitely incomparable than feeling good in the moment, being able to sleep or much better not that we don't want people to feel better today we do but we live in a day and age that they do not want to experience sadness at any cost um, it is it, just not what they want you know i it, this is a disease and that's how i when i listen to that video she she's having a heart of compassion that psychiatrist sorry, a heart of compassion saying oh people are really struggling with this and my heart goes out for them, but they're diseased. like, no, we're not diseased. We are normal. God made us so that we respond to situations in life. And yes, in the sight of heaven, in this broken world, we will experience sorrow. We will experience, but there'll be a day. Revelation 21, and this, with this I'll close. If you have follow-up questions, just come to me later. But Revelation 21, in the new heaven and the new earth. Um, 21 verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among man, and he will dwell among man, among them, and they shall be his people, and God his, himself will be with them. Now this is how God created us to have that fellowship with him and to be with him forever. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. And it says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there'll be no longer any death. There'll be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. That, that word we can trust. That yes, one day there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more pain. Um, he will make sure that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And this side of heaven, we will experience those things. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you with um, humility of hearts that we don't know everything that needs to be known. Far from it, Lord, we do know that people will struggle with deep sadness. Um, Some that do have genuine cause, um, their bodies are reacting uh, to the fallenness to the decay in the bodies, but some just not being able to handle life well. And I pray, Father, that you would um, give us this week to reflect on these things, on how we ought to respond and put our hopes not on feeling better, but honoring and glorifying you even when things don't get better. Pray that you would give us wisdom as a church to help those in need May we come alongside them. May we comfort them with the comfort that we receive from you, and even helping them to make decisions. We don't do this medical decisions for them, but helping them to think biblically through these things. I pray that, particularly this upcoming week, will be a time of preparation for us to really think and dive into your Word on how to deal with um, depression, sadness, and grief. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.